Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at. I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. Mysteries of World War II, Pacific Theater. The unfortunate events of war, one of the most ferocious events took place in the Pacific Theater, where a series of battles during World War II took place. Before the start of the war in the Pacific, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, the American military base located on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. After the surprise attack, the United States declared war on Japan and joined World War II. The attack came because the United States had stopped trade of oil and other materials to Japan. The attack came as a surprise because the U.S. government didn't think that Japan would be so foolish as to attack American territory. Major events were recorded but there were many accounts of unacknowledged episodes interspersed amongst the adventures of heroes and battles. These are the stories of these strange events and forgotten mysteries. Solomon Island Giants The Solomon Islands experienced some of the fiercest fighting in World War II and are most famous for the bloody Battle of Guadalcanal in 1942 and 1943. Japanese forces had more to contend with than Allied soldiers on the Solomon Islands. While traversing the island's numerous remote, thick rainforest, the soldiers often reported coming across giant hairy hominids ranging from 10 to 15 feet in height and covered in long brown to reddish brown hair with prominent brows, flat noses, and wide mouths. The creature had immense arms and were known on occasion to even brandish crude weapons such as clubs. It was reported that the giants were known to be quite aggressive and even attack on occasion. Several units described these terrifying beasts crashing through foliage to ravage squads of soldiers or snapping apart trees and branches in threatening displays of power. Bullets were said to have little effect on them and soldiers would on many occasions be kept awake by inhuman wailing from the dark as the strange behemoths wandered the night. Indeed, the Solomon Islands have a long history of mysterious giants and the local people are well aware of them. There is a rich tradition of folklore as well as sightings and footprints evidence of giant hairy hominids on the islands that continue right up to the present day. Bukitima the Monkey Man The Bukitima Monkey Man is a hairy hominid or some sort of primate said to inhabit Singapore, primarily the Bukitima rainforest region. This cryptid is largely known through accounts from Japanese soldiers in World War II who often encountered the creatures during the Japanese occupation of Singapore. This cryptid is said to be a bipedal, ape-like creature 
around three to six feet tall and covered with grayish hair. It is a typical example of what are often referred to as proto-pygmies or miniature hairy hominids allegedly seen in many parts of the world. Although most accounts date from World War II, occasional sightings of these creatures persist into the present day. All sightings have occurred within the confines of the Bukatima Nature Reserve, which is a pristine protected area established in 1883 and is the only remaining primary forest in Singapore. The area has remained largely undisturbed and unspoiled for hundreds of years. The reserve only has an area of 1.64 square kilometers, yet has amazing biodiversity. It is said that 40% of Singapore's flora and fauna is found here. Tigers were even found here until the end of the 19th century. Originating in 1805, surprisingly, none of this seems to be new knowledge. Over the years, there have been many anecdotal accounts of the monkey man roaming the jungles. The earliest sightings of the monkey man can be traced to 1805 when a Malay elder claimed to have seen a monkey-faced creature in the Bukit Tima area. Japanese soldiers stationed in Singapore during World War II also provided accounts of these creatures. Then, in 2007, the new paper published an article chronicling some sightings of Monkey Man. Here are two of the most interesting accounts. A 48-year-old taxi driver allegedly ran into the Monkey Man while driving past a fire station at Upper Bukit Tima Road in the dead of night. He explains that he was hitting what he thought was a child that had run out in front of the vehicle. It was on the car bonnet and then it snarled at me like a monkey but so big. It ran off injured, covered in blood, holding an arm which was broken. A 65-year-old male retiree also recounted Monkey Man Kampong folklore from his childhood days. He explained that they were told as children never to go near the forest at night because of the Monkey Man. They'd never actually caught a glimpse of it themselves, but it was always some uncle or friend of the family who had seen it. He shared this chilling description. Once we were shown footprints near the forest road. I remember a strong urine smell. Whenever we heard shrieks coming from the jungle, we would each tell the other, don't disturb the monkey man. According to cryptozoologists, the Bukitima monkey man might be part of the Orangpendic species. Orangpendic, which means short person, is a primate or type of primate that reportedly roams the remote and mountainous forest of Sumatra. The Singapore Free Press wrote in detail about these creatures in an article called Mysterious Jungle Races of Sumatra, Giants and Pygmies, dated July 19, 1932. The writer made some fascinating claims. According to the article, these creatures are short, possess a language of their own, and will flee upon sighting humans. They speak at a terrible speed. When they see a human being, they'll shout, Duranga, 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 which probably means a human being. A human being, a human being. The orange pendant works as guardians of shepherds and typically rear swine while living in jungles with ponds. Old hunters believe that boars under the guardianship of the orange pendant will never be caught. Apparently these creatures can also build houses as they live in big virgin jungles, but they can't tell the difference between what is food and what is not. They also have an uncanny resemblance to humans. They supposedly have bodily features that exactly resemble a human being's. Their height is the same as the height of a human being. They do not know how to clothe themselves and their feet are turned backwards. Heels to the front and toes pointing backward. On certain occasions, orange pendant may appear aggressive in confrontations with humans. 
They're described as very clever and able to throw stones or wood at their enemies. Since the Bukitima Monkey Man has been generally sighted inside the reserve, which measures 1.6 square kilometers, and since it's frequented by visitors and researchers, it's extremely unlikely that a creature of that size would go unnoticed all these years. Other people think that perhaps they're being mistaken with a crab-eating macaque monkeys, which are indigenous to the park. In other words, this is what they think is the monkey man. Curiously, these monkeys are typically 38 to 55 centimeters in height, which is a far cry from the monkey man's reported height of 1 to 2 meters. However, a person's depth and height precession can be skewed by different lights and angular conditions. Ultimately, the question is, are we talking about two different creatures or only one? Giant land crabs. Soldiers stationed on remote islands of the Japanese archipelago, particularly in the Rukuyu island chain, were occasionally startled by giant crabs roaming around on beaches and in coastal forests. The crabs are described as being like large spiders with long spindly legs and small bodies. One horrifying account allegedly occurred in the aftermath of the Battle of Okinawa, a battle that was fought over 82 days in 1945 and is considered to be the largest amphibious assault in the Pacific War. A Japanese unit came across a large number of what they described as huge spider-like crabs feeding on the dead bodies of fallen soldiers on the beach. The crabs in this case were said to have leg spans ranging from 2 to 4 meters. It is generally thought that these accounts are the result of sighting giant Japanese spider crabs that had somehow wandered up onto land. Japanese spider crabs inhabit the waters of Japan and have the longest leg spans of any arthropod, up to 12 feet. As their name suggests, they look very much like large, long-legged spiders. The problem with this explanation lies in the fact that although spider crabs have been known to come into shallower waters from time to time, adult crabs are usually found at depths of 160 to 2,000 feet. They are not known to leave their aquatic habitat, and it doesn't even appear to be biologically feasible for this species. Although it seems unlikely that these crabs would be able to emerge from the deep cold waters they call home, they would certainly be a chilling and surprising sight on land. Giant crabs, giant spiders, or figments of the imagination? What were those soldiers seeing? It remains an enigma. To be sure, there are large species of land crabs, such as the coconut crab, which is the largest terrestrial arthropod. However, these crabs are more robust than spider crabs and have adapted to life on land, such as evolving an organ called a branchiostegal lung, which is a sort of cross between gills and lungs. Sea Monster Attack The sea had its own share of mysteries during the Pacific War. In addition to numerous sightings of sea serpents throughout the war, there is at least one instance of a ship actually being attacked by some kind of sea monster. The crew aboard one Japanese scout ship were surprised during one nighttime mission by something they could not really explain. One crewman described how a surge of water erupted near the vessel, after which the boat was jolted by something ramming the hull. Other crewmen arrived and saw what appeared to be a large gray shape in the water, at least 50 feet long, with a white underbelly, leathery skin, prominent dorsal fin, and what was described as the head of an alligator. The creature would ram the vessel, circle back, then ram it again. It got to the point where the bone-jarring impacts caused the boat to list to starboard, 
upon which the shocked and panicked crew finally opened fire, finally sending whatever it was that had attacked them back into the depth from which it came. There was so much damage to their ship that they were forced to abandon their mission and go back for repairs. The Orange Econ During World War II, a Japanese surveillance team stationed on the picturesque Kai Islands of Indonesia reported coming across strange mer-beings described as being around 150 centimeters tall with webbed hands and feet and carp-like mouths filled with spiny teeth. The heads were adorned with prominent spines and the faces were somewhat human-like in appearance. Baffled soldiers sometimes encountered these curious beasts frolicking and splashing about in the water as well as occasionally even coming up on beaches. The native population of the islands knew of these creatures and called them the Orange Econ, or Manfish. The sergeant of the team, Taro Horib, was invited to come look at the dead body of one such creature at the village chief's house. The perplexed sergeant described the dead creature as being around 160 centimeters long, with red-brown shoulder-length hair and spines along the back. The face was said to have a mix of human and ape-like features such as a low broad nose and prominent brow. The lipless mouth was wide like that of a fish and filled with tiny needle-like teeth. The creature's fingers and toes were long and webbed. Harib was deeply affected by what he had seen and actively sought zoologists from his home country to investigate upon his return. Ultimately, he was unsuccessful in finding anyone willing to do so. And as such, it is unlikely we will ever know what the orange econ truly was. Giant Bats During the Pacific War, counts can be found of strange creatures lurking in the rainforest of the Rikuyu Islands of Japan. Soldiers in the remote interior forest reported being startled by giant bats with wingspans of up to six feet. Accounts of these mysterious beasts vary. Descriptions range from these beasts as being everything from shy and rarely seen, to ravenous vampire bats feasting on cattle. One account even describes a dramatic attack by several of the bats on a terrified squad of soldiers who were able to drive them away with gunfire. Giant bat-like animals are a common type of cryptid throughout the world. So, is it possible that these remote islands of Japan also harbored their own version of such a creature? The Ruku Islands have no species of bat that match the size reported for these mystery creatures and there are few reports of such animals from after the war, so it is uncertain what they could have been. Perhaps we will never know. The Kijibuna Giant bats were not the only strange creatures that soldiers had to contend with on Japan's Ruku Islands. From the southern reaches of the Okinawan Islands in Japan, there were also numerous accounts of encounters with an enigmatic creature known as the Kijimuna. The Kijimuna is described as being an ape-like creature around the height of a small child, with disproportionately long arms and covered in sparse reddish hair that is often said to be kinky or must. Some reports describe the creature as wearing crude clothing and often remarked upon features of the Kijimuna is their powerful odor, described as a pungent mixture of goat and rotten yams. Flying Humanoids one of the more bizarre creatures sighted during war in the Pacific also occurred in the southern islands, this time specifically on Okinawa Island. In this case, troops reported seeing strange humanoid beings in the sky, often near military installations. These flying humanoids were mostly sighted around the time of the bloody battle of Okinawa in 1945. 
These beings were described as having large leathery wings like a bat, yet seemingly to be mostly human in other aspects. The flying humanoids were mostly solitary, although there was at least one occasion when more than one was spotted together. Whatever the creatures were, they are mostly reported as being silent and shy, keeping their distance never actually coming close enough to see a lot of detail. Despite this, it was often reported that the eyewitnesses had the unnerving feeling that they were somehow being observed by the enigmatic creatures. The sightings of these flying humanoids have an eerie similarity to a more modern-day sighting from a military installation in Japan. In 1952, at Camp Okubu near Kyoto, Japan, a private Sinclair Taylor reported seeing something strange in the sky. The being was about seven foot tall with a similar wingspan. The panicked guard began firing his weapon towards it, but when he looked at the spot where the being had been hovering, it had vanished. Taylor had originally thought the creature to be a giant bird at first. It was not until it drew closer that he realized it had a humanoid body. The creature had been flapping its large wings. The sound of this flapping was first alerted Taylor to the creature's presence, but upon coming closer, the thing began to hover instead. The being was described as around seven feet tall and with a similar wingspan. Depending on the report you read, there is also mention of glowing eyes. However, it is difficult to say if this was in Taylor's original report or an embellishment added later. The creature hovered before the terrified Taylor, who began firing his weapon at it in a frenzied panic. When he looked back to where the creature had been, it was gone, leaving behind no apparent blood or any other physical evidence. Taylor was also not the only witness to whatever this thing was. When he reported to his sergeant, it was revealed that a guard had seen what was apparently the same thing the year before. Although Taylor did not know this other sighting and had no contact with the other eyewitness, the descriptions of the creature were remarkably similar. It is unclear whether this sighting had anything to do with World War II sightings in Okinawa, but they seem similar enough to warrant mention. It is unfortunate that we may never have answers to these fascinating wartime cryptid accounts. At the time, there was rarely any attempt to collect evidence or launch a proper investigation into these bizarre occurrences. In most cases, such reports were considered merely anomalies and distractions from wartime duties. In addition, few scientists would have been willing to go back and venture into these war zones to investigate such reports, even if they were so inclined. As such, World War II cryptid accounts such as these may be forever lost to time. The following are a few unusual stories about that area. Story number one. I know I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I just can't keep quiet. I need to tell someone about what happened to me and my fellow airmen back in early 2014. I was stationed at Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa, Japan, and Uncle Sam had blessed us with a P-8 Poseidon, a modified Boeing 737 that the U.S. Navy turned into a top-of-the-line surveillance plane. It was relatively new to the region, and nothing felt better than knowing that you were in the latest and greatest of Marine Patrol aircraft on the face of the earth. It was loaded with tons of fun toys at our disposal to remind the People's Republic that we don't take kindly to it bullying our allies. We had torpedoes, depth charges, slammer missiles, harpoon anti-ship missiles, sauna boys, and surveillance equipment so powerful we felt like we were on a first-name basis with half the staff 
of the PLAF airbase on the Parcel Islands after only a couple of ops. It was like being the rich kid on the block, the one whose parents didn't just buy him a new bike, but instead went all out and bought him a Ducati. We had done some pretty standard flights in the first few months. Fly around the islands of Okinawa, maybe a patrol or two about 100 miles off the coast of mainland China, doing little more than dropping sauna boys and intercepting a radio transmission or two that were nothing of note. Then word came down that we were to do a relatively close flyby of Henan Island, following pretty much the same route that a Navy EP-3 flew during the infamous Hainan Island incident. Our briefing was pretty bare bones, but suffice to say we were supposed to investigate a mysterious signal another patrol had encountered the day before, originating from somewhere in the ocean near Hainan. This route would give us 70 miles separation from Hainan's coastline and keep us 100 miles away from the PLAF installation on the Parcel Islands. There was a little animosity among the crew, but bravado and rough humor diffused the situation pretty quickly. I recall our co-pilot suggesting that his life would be easier if he just deserted, went native and took one of the local girls as his wife. My friendly reminder that he didn't speak a word of Japanese didn't stop him from informing me that I was welcome to go fornicate with any of the local livestock I could find. Happy or not, we soon found ourselves loaded up in our Poseidon and heading along the same path that EP3 took on that fateful day back in 2001. The trip to Hainan itself was quite boring, which was fine by me. We had been in the air for a little over seven hours doing our regular business when we could see the coast of Hainan off in the distance. The trip had pretty much just consisted of scanning the radar to see civilian aircraft moving along their pathways as was expected. When we reached the target area, we dropped to 200 feet to drop sauna boys and let the sensors do their thing scanning the water beneath us. Ten minutes crept by with not so much as a peep from my instrument panel. Just as I was beginning to feel more relaxed, one of my sensors pinged a contact about 90 feet beneath the waves. The contact didn't fit the characteristics of any submarine I knew of, and it's my job to recognize the sonar signatures of submarine. For one, it was moving way more than what is characteristic of a submarine. The network of sauna boys we had deployed picked up something clipping along at an unbelievable 300 knots. I did a double take. There is no nation in the world that has a sub that can go that fast. The Russians had one back in the Cold War that could go maybe 45 knots, but this was just ludicrous. It was weaving back and forth in a serpentine fashion so fast that it was jumping across the display. It was moving so fast that our systems couldn't even track it in real time. On top of all this, the signature was very faint. If we hadn't had top-of-the-line sensors on board, I doubt we would have even picked up the contact at all. There were two possibilities to explain the faint signature. Possibility A, the contact had some sort of stealth capability that was doing its damnedest to fool our sensors. Possibility B, the contact was very small, maybe just a bit longer than the short sub the marine grunts take to work in the morning. I was mulling this over my head when the contact disappeared from my screen. Three of the Sunner boys had stopped sending information, and as I reached for my comms, a fourth went dark as well. Not good. I radioed the pilot and told him what I had seen, asking that we double back to see if we could reestablish contact. He was happy to oblige. Pride runs deep in the Marine Patrol community, 
and you do not want to be known as the crew who lost a sub. We set a heading for the last known position and ready to drop more boys. As we neared the spot where contact was lost, my air radar let out a gentle beep, signifying the entrance of a new bogey in our airspace. I hunched over the display watching as the blip careened from side to side in our direction while maintaining that same 103 knot velocity. It was so unexpected that I found myself unable to look away as the contact carried out maneuvers at an impossible 15 feet above the surface of the sea. Weird approach or not, this was an undeniable intercept course with our plane, and we would be close enough to shake hands in moments unless one of us changed course. The contact disappeared from my display, snapping me out of my temporarily stupefied state. I quickly notified the pilot that we had company, about 45 seconds out. He acknowledged but informed me that the skies were clear as far as he could see. The notion of equipment malfunction began to creep into my mind when the blip appeared once more. This time it was at 200 feet, our exact operating altitude. It had made a huge distance gain on us in a short period of time. I heard the pilot scream in surprise before my whole world turned into a sudden whirlwind of turbulence. Without warning, the laws of physics decided that everything not bolted down needed to be in another part of the plane right now. Unfortunately, I was one of those objects. Our P-8 pulled up and banked starboard, sending me tumbling out of my chair and rolling towards the aft of the plane. I had taken off my safety harness when I visited the chem pot about two hours prior and had simply forgotten to put it back on. Yeah, I know it's regulation to be strapped in, and shame on me for not being by the book. Buckle yourself or go fuckle yourself, one of my instructors used to say, and I was most definitely being fuckled right now. Engine one is out, the pilot yelled over the comms. I got back to my feet about two stations away from where I started. Three meters doesn't seem like a long distance to travel until you are ragdolled that distance with a sudden stop five seconds later. Another crew member offered an outstretched hand to help me stabilize, and I gratefully took it and I started to make my way back to my seat. Bandits making another pass. Brace! The plane shuddered as it bit into a hard turn, stalling my attempt to return to my post. I was about to try and inch my way back to the safety of my seat when the whole station was torn apart before my eyes. Bullets ripped through the fuselage, sending fragments of metal and plastic flying in all directions. I dropped to the ground, covering my head with my arms as a shower of sparks and debris rained all around me. It was over in seconds. Well, by over I mean I wasn't getting shot at anymore. We were still in full-on evasive maneuvers, and I needed to find somewhere to bunker down before I got tossed again. I located a fortunately placed grab handle I could brace myself against, feeling a little more in control of my destiny. I looked around to get my bearings. I was at the midship emergency exit hatch just over the port side wing. There was a porthole window on this door. You know, the little window you're supposed to look through to make sure you aren't escaping into a fire? And it was giving me the most unsettling view of the attack I could imagine. He's back! Look out! I didn't need the warning. I could see our assailant clear as day through my window. I was stunned to see that it was an old prop-powered fighter plane. It was dark green color with a large red circle just behind the cockpit on the fuselage. I'm no historian, but I know a World War II Japanese plane when I see one. Growing up, I had quite the fascination with these old planes, but now my childhood dreams had manifested themselves as a lethal nightmare. 
the fighter came at us and at an obtuse angle attack run, catching up to our bird with little effort, most likely facilitated by us only being powered by one engine now. I could recognize the type of plane at this point. It was a Mitsubishi A5M carrier-based fighter, just like the model one I used to have hanging from fishing line in my childhood bedroom. Twin flashes pulsated along its underbelly as it let loose with its machine gun armament peppering our tail section and rudder. Controls are down, boys. This isn't good. Like a vulture sweeping in on carry and the Proto-Zero performed a lazy gliding turn and set course to intersect with us once more. Shockingly, the expected kill shot didn't come. Instead, I saw the fighter pull up alongside us and match our speed like you see in old World War movies where a pilot pulls up to his defeated foe to look him in the eye and decide his fate. But nothing about this felt like an honorable aerial duel of yore. When the plane reached its mark alongside our bird, I was able to get a good look at, well, the seemingly empty space where there was supposed to be a pilot. A faint blue glow was emanating from within while its shadows danced across the glass panes of the canopy. I was completely transfixed, mesmerized as a child would be by fireworks. Then I saw the hand. Amidst the playful light, a hand clawed at the bullet-resistant glass as though something within was attempting to break out. The owner of the hand made an appearance soon after. It was a young man, no older than twenty, rising up from the cramped pilot's compartment and blearily looking around as if he wasn't entirely sure where he was. Finally, he looked right in my direction, his face a twisted mask of pain and sorrow but overlaid with a hint of surprise, as though he just realized he was attacking another plane. His hands snapped to attention, grabbing at what must be where the flight controls were located. He frantically pulled at them, throwing the full weight of his body against the controls, but to no avail. He turned to me and I could see him yelling, his mouth agape while his breath left patches of fog against the canopy. He banged against the glass for about 20 seconds in a vain attempt to free himself from his high-speed prison. Sobbing, he stopped and stared into my eyes. He began to write something on the fog glass, but I could hardly make it out. I thought I knew what it said, but before I could be positive, the plane veered sharply away. I watched him leave with dread. This was not the type of turn you would typically see when a pilot was breaking off engagement. This was one of those hard turns, aggressive and mean and full of fight. This fighter was going to make another pass while we sailed along with one engine and a badly damaged rudder. Sitting duck always sounds like a fun expression until you are the sitting duck. Worse still is knowing that you are a sitting duck leading up to the kill shot. Second after excruciating second, slide by while you wait for the inevitable. He's coming in for the kill, and he's brought a friend. That made my stomach turn. Two of them? Looks like we're sailing the Poopoo River without a boat, let alone a paddle. There was no way we could. I stuck by my window, and sure enough, the A5M entered into my visual range before long. His friend wasn't an A5M at all. In fact, it was a Corsair, another old fighter, but one that would have been used by American carriers. Apparently, the years had cooled things between them as they danced before me, guns blazing away. Their dogfight took them all over the place. One erratic turn would send them racing in our direction, while another would push them further away. I took a good look at the Corsair as it made a pass. It had the same blue light coming from within it as the first fighter did. Something gnawing at the back of my mind told me that if I were to see the pilot inside the American plane, he wouldn't be any happier than the Japanese one was. They were both prisoners to the bloodthirsty spirits 
that had taken up residence inside their warbirds. The dogfight continued to ebb and flow both towards us and away, but there was a gradual trend of them getting further and further away. After about five minutes, there were just specks on the horizon. You would lose them from sight every now and then before making out the flash of machine gun fire and locating them again. As for us, we limped back to our base in Okinawa. The whole crew was pretty shaken up, and it was quite a treat to explain to our superiors how a World War II aircraft flown by a blue light knocked the crap out of us over the South China Sea, but that it was all okay because we were rescued by another World War II aircraft flown by the same blue light. The whole crew was sent for one long debriefing, and even the ground crew we interacted with were brought in to make sure they knew what did and did not happen. Nothing happened as far as the Navy was concerned. We were sworn to secrecy and reminded about how the government could find very, very deep dark holes to dispose of annoying people. I just can't stop thinking of that young pilot's face, though. I still have nightmares about what happened, but in my dreams, I can make out what the Japanese pilot was writing on the cockpit's glass. It says, forgive me. He is begging for forgiveness so he can be released from his living hell. Deep down, I know that those two pilots may never find peace and that they are still out there fighting and suffering. Story number two. On August 9, 1945, a plume of smoke and fire engulfed the city of Nagasaki. The hellfire and its subsequent radioactive plume claimed the lives of 39 to 80,000 people over the next two weeks. A large portion of these deaths resulted from the shock and the stupor of having just survived something believed impossible. As many as 5,000 people walked down to the shores of the Urakami River and waded into the water to alleviate the pain from the radiation burns on their skin. Many of these people, filled with complete shock, promptly drowned. On August 23rd, elements of the 2nd Marine Division entered a destroyed city to restore order from chaos. One of the men sent into the city was Lance Corporal Richard Murphy, my grandfather. Now, contrary to popular belief, the idea of a nuclear explosion creating an irradiated wasteland is mostly myth. Most of the radiation was gone from Nagasaki by the time my grandfather entered the city. The stuff that remained had mostly settled to the ground and could be washed off at the end of the day. My grandfather had survived numerous contacts with the enemy. Antinian, Saipan, Guadalcanal, and Okinawa. On Okinawa, they were told that the local populace may be hostile, and if met with any aggression or even suspicion of aggression, they were to use deadly force. Once on a patrol, they encountered a hysterical woman running towards her element holding a box. The Zippo, or flamethrower, lit her up and she kept on running while all the while getting slower and slower until she fell onto her knees and dropped the now disintegrating box onto the ground. What was in the box was a newborn baby. Trust me when I tell you that was not the worst thing my grandfather saw while he was at war. In Nagasaki, my father's platoon was tasked to patrol along a section of the Uwakami River. By this point in time, most of the bodies had been moved, but there were a few people still flash frozen in place. Alternatively, most of the bodies in the Urakami had already been washed downstream and presumably out into the ocean. The third day of patrolling, my grandfather heard a hey Murph and turned around to see a young Japanese man running towards him. Turns out it was a Japanese national who attended college with my grandfather. Upon graduation, he returned back to his hometown, Nagasaki. The two men shared a smoke, talked about their time at school, and generally spoke of everything except about the destruction and death that surrounded them. 
they parted ways with a young man offering to buy my grandfather a few beers if he could still find a bar standing. They shook hands and left. It was the day after this event where reality started to blur. Imagine my grandfather had been fighting an enemy. He had seen the destructive power of both sides in the conflict, he himself having been awarded for bravery under fire, as well as being credited for calling in a naval bombardment in which an estimated 23 enemy soldiers were killed. Yet here he was in the desolated wasteland in his enemy's own country, and being one of the first and last people who have ever in history experienced what a nuclear weapon could do to a city that just two weeks prior was lively and thriving, filled with men, women, and children, happy lives, far away and previously detached from the horrors of the war. This would psychologically affect most, if not all, people. It was a night patrol. My grandfather was out with a small fire team, six men, patrolling through the deserted and fouled wasteland. They were walking along the shore of the Urakami when the man on point exclaimed, I think I see a body. He pointed in the direction of the river about 10 meters from shore, but then decided it was just his imagination. They continued to patrol. Body, I am sure this time. There was a hand sticking out of the surface of the water, just a mere meter from the shore. They attempted to retrieve it, but it was a detached hand. If it was a full body, they would have done something about it. Pulled it up on shore, logged its location, but it was just an arm. They left it on the bank. They walked another five minutes. They took a small break, lit up some lucky strikes, and dicked around for a few minutes. Talked about girls, talked about home, generally anything they could talk about to keep their minds off of the devastation surrounding them. Eventually, damn, another one, look out about 20 meters, a hand bobbing along the surface. Then another, and another. They started breaking the water, 3, 10, 20, 50. Then they started moving towards the shore, the hands with the fingers moving the wind blowing over the flat land with no building obstructing its howl. The men panicked. One let off a few rounds from his garand into the water. They ran. They ran from the Urakami and did not look back. I was the only person in my family that my grandfather told his story to. Just like I was the only person he told a story about the young girls with a newborn baby. He told me this story after he developed lung cancer. No, it wasn't the radiation, but a life of smoking. He told me the story and wondered out loud what was on the other side. He was wondering if he was going to be like one of the hands crossing the Urakami, grasping and groping for some meaning. He wondered if when he reached the other side, if there would be someone there to take his hand and pull him up. He also wondered if he would see those he affected, those he failed to pull up himself. Story number three. One of the residents, I'll call him James, at the retirement home told me this once. I was stationed in Okinawa after the war. They wanted us to keep an eye on the Japanese and for good reason. In some parts of the country, the natives weren't aware that the war was over or they weren't ready to accept defeat. Either way, we had to constantly be on high alert, jumping at shadows and wishing we had eyes in the back of our heads. Within every clump of tall grass there appeared to be an enemy lurking with a knife, waiting to cut our throat once our backs were turned. Every tree contained a sniper lining us up in its crosshairs. I lived in a constant state of paranoia during my time on Okinawa. I finally got transferred to work on one of the supply ships offshore. I thought this would calm my nerves a bit. It didn't. Instead of worrying about bonsai attacks and sniper fire, I found myself keeping peeled eyes towards the sky, anxiously waiting for an attack. The crew was anxious too. But with each passing day, the tranquility of the sea 
helped us feel more and more relaxed. After a couple of weeks, we started to joke around, show each other pictures of our girls back home, and enjoy the wonderful climate. By then, we started to think that the war was really over. Our surprise came just before dawn. Our ship would have been attacked whether we were ready or not. There wasn't anything we could have done to prevent it. Our only goal that morning was to survive. I learned an important lesson that day. Chivalry and decency seem to disappear wherever there is panic. The pandemonium that happened shortly after the first plane crashed into our ship has left me with mixed feelings of reproach and guilt. I was asleep when the first plane struck. At first I thought we somehow hit a rock as I was tossed from my bunk bed and onto the cold hard floor. I heard frantic shouting above me and a sobering thought entered my head. We were under attack. I stumbled onto the deck and was greeted by a scene of chaos and anarchy. My crewmates were scrambling in erratic movements. Some were trying to contain the flames, which were rapidly swallowing the ship. Others were heading for the lifeboats. A few had opted to dive over the side, hoping to find refuge in the warm waters below. None were following the orders of the captain, who was barking at us to remain our ground. We were, after all, only a supply ship. We had no firepower to return to our assailants. I quickly scanned the skies and my stomach dropped. Three more Baca bombs were nosediving towards us, bent on delivering a swift death. Had I not heard my name being called, I would have surely died right then and there. James! James! Over here! My head snapped towards the starboard side, where I could see my crewmate, Kazuo, who we called Kaz, climbing onto one of the few remaining lifeboats. He was waving his arms at me, and without a second thought, I sprinted over to him and drove into my only hope for safety. Before I could suggest to pick up a few more fellow crew members, Kaz dropped the line and we plummeted into the sea below just as a second plane crashed into the ship. Our little boat rocked dangerously from the force, and my ears rang from the explosion. All around us, I saw the hands of the drowning crew reaching for us, begging to be saved. Their screams as they were swept away to their watery grave was the last thing I heard before I slipped away into blackness. When I came to, I was surrounded by nothing but that tranquil sea again. The water stretched on for miles. The carnage of our supply ship was nowhere to be seen and seemed like a distant memory. Kaz was busily rowing as I lethargically glanced around. I wonder how far we traveled. You're awake. I was ready to toss you overboard, Kaz said grimly then gave me a waning smile. He was the ship's translator. We had chatted a few times, but to be honest, I knew little about him. He had a few loose screws upstairs, but for the most part, he was all right. Do you know where we are? Kaz laughed. He probably knew squat about navigation. Based on the sheepish pitch of his laugh, I'd say we were lost. We're safe. That's all that matters. Yep, we were lost. Did anyone else make it? Not that I know of. The ship sank. What about the other lifeboats? Kaz shrugged. I suddenly remembered the hands that struggled to keep those poor men afloat and shuddered. Did Kaz just abandon those men? I mean, he was busy saving both our asses, but Jesus. I tried to use what little navigational knowledge I had to direct our course, but it was hopeless. Kaz managed to grab a bag of supplies before leaving ship. I sifted through its contents. There was some food, mostly canned beans, jugs of water, a coil of rope, a knife, a line, and hook and a lighter. But there was nothing to direct us, no compass, no sextant. I'd even settled for a map. We were lost at sea. The boredom was sickening. I crafted a fishing rod using one of the oars, but the fish weren't biting. Once or twice, Kaz asked if he could eat my corpse if I bit the dust first. 
I hoped that he was joking. With not much else to do, we took turns keeping watch. One of us would sleep while the other one stayed awake. This way we had a lookout at all hours. The sun beat down on my head during the day and the winds whipped in my face at night. I kept my eyes on the horizon for ships. At this point, I didn't care if they were friendly or not. I just wanted to get the hell off this boat. I woke up one afternoon to Kaz brooding. Usually he greeted me with a snide remark, but none came this time. Something was wrong. Everything okay, I asked. I saw something this morning. What? I asked hopefully. There was a man out there. At least it looked like a man, but he was standing on top of the water. It could have been nothing. Maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe he replied then fell silent. I forgot about it as soon as Kaz fell asleep. I had an uneventful watch that day. Kaz kept insisting that he saw a man standing on the water while I was asleep. He told me that each morning he got closer and closer to our boat. I was beginning to get a little freaked out at this point, so I decided to stay awake with him during his watch. Sure enough, a little before dawn, I saw him too. At first, I thought it was just my mind playing tricks on me, but when Kaz nudged me and pointed him out, I knew this wasn't a hallucination. I heard Kaz mutter, Don't speak, as we gazed at this strange phenomenon. There standing on top of the water about 100 meters away was a man. I held my breath as he turned to look in our direction. It was as if he was looking straight at me. My blood suddenly ran cold and the hairs on my neck felt like needles. The man on the water didn't move. He just stood there and stared at us. The water flowed over his feet as if he were standing on some invisible island. When the sun came up, he simply vanished. You saw him too. Just as I feared, Kaz mumbled once the day broke. Who, what the hell was that? I demanded. Do you know anything about Japanese folklore? He asked warily. I shook my head. Kaz inhaled deeply. As a child, my father used to tell me stories about these figures in the water called the Funayurei. They were supposedly the souls of victims who had drowned in the sea. According to legends, they ask you for a spoon, a hishaku, which they used to fill your boat up with water and drown you. I always used to think they were just ghost stories meant to spook little children, but... Kaz's voice drifted off. I morbidly thought of the drowning hands, clawing desperately at the air, the hands that Kaz and myself abandoned. Do we have a spoon? He asked suddenly. I searched the contents of the bag, even though I knew that there was no spoon, I said. Kuso, Kaz cursed, grabbing his hair with both hands. Why didn't I grab a spoon? I let Kaz have his temper tantrum. I wasn't really following him. Ghosts? Spoons? Then again, we're supposed to poke holes in it so our boat doesn't fill up with water. That way the spirit gives up and leaves us alone. Without a spoon, we're as good as dead. If we don't find a ship, we're as good as dead, I reminded him. The following night, Kaz shook me awake. There, look! He was pointing over the stern of the boat. I followed his finger and gasped. Something was drifting up toward the boat. The water looked almost like floating balls of cotton. The shape quickly moved upward, its white face illuminating the surrounding darkness. As the figure surfaced, I could make out its hair floating wildly in the water. It gave off a gurgling sound, the sound of someone drowning. A pair of hands shot up out of the water, thrashing about the hands of a drowning victim. This went on for about five terrifying minutes before they went limp and disappeared into the sea. I made a move toward them, but Cass stopped me. It's a trick, he whispered. Then everything went quiet, but the figure was still under there, watching us. Suddenly, a face as white as snow emerged from the surface, 
so that the water level came up to its chin. It was the man who we had been spotting for the past few nights. He wasn't treading water or anything, but still managed to remain afloat despite being as stiff as a piece of driftwood. He made a chuckling sound with a throat that sounded like it was full of water. Go away, cried Kaz. Leave us alone. Spoon. Give me a spoon, please, the man croaked. He looked straight at me and a chill ran down my spine. Like a poison spider, his eyes were glossy dead. Please, I need it. We don't have any. Now leave us, Cass said again. Meanwhile, I just sat there petrified. The man was talking to me. Please. I said no, Cass roared. And suddenly he jumped to his feet and grabbed the oar. He held it over his head and brought it down on the Funayure. Kaz's actions were quick, but the spirit was quicker. The figure dropped below the surface as if something had pulled him down. With lightning speed, the spirit grasped the blade of the oar and gave it a tremendous tug. I had to grab Kaz to keep him from going overboard. Our boat threatened to capsize as the oar vanished into the water. We began frantically scanning all sides of the boat for the Funayure like two people surrounded by hungry sharks. One second, the dark water around us was peaceful. The next second, there was a great splashing sound as hundreds of hands broke the surface of the water. They were struggling. They, too, were drowning. They shrieked, and my body went numb. It sounded like a chorus of damned souls. My bladder let loose, and I felt warmth trickle down my leg. Next thing I knew, five dead hands wrapped around Kaz's face, torso, and leg and pulled him over the side of the boat. He let out a scream that was cut short when he hit the water. Kaz was dragged to the bottom of the ocean, never to be seen again. The water around me became peaceful yet again. The hands were gone. At this point, I had accepted my fate. I prayed and I prayed that the death would be swift and merciful, but no hands came for me. I was rescued a few days later by a passing merchant ship. Fortunately, the people on board spoke English and brought me to safety. They must have thought I was a lunatic as I babbled madly about drowning ghosts and spoons. Back at the retirement home. So what? The spirits just left you alone, I asked. James nodded his head, lost in thought. They never got me. I lived through banzai attacks, kamikazes, and bullets whizzing past my head. But that encounter was, without a doubt, the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. I took a deep breath. I was a bit freaked out by James' tale. Why did they spare you, I asked, not expecting an answer. After a while, James spoke. The Funayure are vengeful spirits. I think they were out to get Kazoo for abandoning our crew. What makes you say that? Because the man I saw standing on the water was the captain of our supply ship.